You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is Brian McClanahan, your host, and this is episode 45, uh, covering the week of October 3rd through October 7th, 2016. Glad to have you back on the program. We had a lot of really good stuff this week at the uh, at the Institute, but before we get to that, again, always our housekeeping. Remember, we exist on your tax-deductible contributions alone, so if you're listening to this podcast and you're in earshot of it and you like what you're hearing, you should try to send us a tax-deductible donation. Uh, we need it to keep the podcast going, to keep the website up, up and running, to uh, help our conferences. We've got some other programs uh, coming up for this year that we really want to do, so uh, please consider uh, donating to our cause. Um, it's, uh, it's a worthwhile thing to do. Uh, we do try to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition, and your help is necessary for that project to go forward. Uh, also, remember to like us on our social media, our Facebook page, our Twitter account, our YouTube channel. Uh, all of these podcasts go on YouTube. We have some other things we're going to be putting on YouTube here in the future. I do have some, uh, some lectures that uh, are going to be going up on the website uh, before too long from our from some of our past conferences, so uh, our summer school. So please uh, look out for those things. Uh, they are going to be there. And again, all of that stuff is free. If you want to listen to the lectures from our past conferences and summer schools, it's all on the website for free. Um, so that's uh, something that your donation would help to keep going uh, moving forward into the future. It's not just for you. It's for your children, your grandchildren, your posterity. It's for the South and, and the Southern people. And it's also for America. As I've said many times in this program, the South is America. And if there's anything worth saving in America, it has to be in the South. And the, and the South really does have to lead the way. It led the way for so long. And actually, one of the pieces we're going to talk about this week, or I'm going to talk about this week, brings that point up and hits it home quite nicely. So uh, let's get started with the material. Uh, the other thing I've been trying to do with these podcasts is keep them a little shorter, about 30 minutes or so, so it doesn't... Uh, take up so much of your day to listen to the podcast. But the first thing I want to talk about, the general theme for this week was reconciliation. And uh, what you find, and we saw when we had our conference on the PC attack on the South back in February of this year in Charleston, uh, and what you've seen over time, there's a, a controversy brewing now in Mississippi over the state flag, uh, every now and then, you know, memorials across the South are being targeted for removal. This is an ongoing process, and we've talked about this this issue several times on this podcast. But what is missing in all of this, I think, is the spirit of reconciliation that was there in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, North and South. Uh, it's something that has been lost in America. For a time, the animosity between the sections wasn't as pronounced as it is today. And that was because, I mean, Northerners had decided that the South had something valuable to add to the Union. I mean, my gosh, they just fought four years to keep them in the Union. And if you're going to demonize them, well, why'd you fight to keep them here? I think this is something that's often missed. Look, if you don't like us so much, why did you fight to keep us here? Uh, what was the point? And there's really no answer for that. So there should be a spirit of reconciliation. There should be 
a recognition of Southern culture and Southern heritage and, and Southern history and the importance of that in the American tradition. It should all be there. And Northerners did recognize that at one time. Unfortunately, today you have some of the most vindictive, vicious, and nasty people that you've ever seen in American history, particularly from the North, demonizing those in the South. Uh, I don't think it was, there's only been maybe one other time in American history when you really find it this bad. Um, And one of the pieces are going to speak to that this week. And then, so what are we going to do about it? That's also part of the theme for this uh, week's podcast. What can be done? Now, there's a positive way to look at this. And then, of course, there's also the negative. And so we're, I'm going to talk a little bit about both in this particular week's podcast. So let's start actually in reverse. I'm going to talk about Friday's post first, and then I'm going to work backwards. The reason I'm going to do that is because Friday's post is, is about this idea of reconciliation. So this particular piece actually comes from a Confederate veteran magazine from the early 20th century, and it was written by Simon Baruch. Now, Simon Baruch was a physician. Um, He was actually born in Prussia, if my memory serves me correctly. He was born in Prussia, but then he settled eventually in the United States and in the South. And he uh, served in the Confederate uh, Surgical Corps and uh, then became a very prominent doctor in New York City. After the war was over, he went north, and uh, he worked in the slums of New York, and he he witnessed the, the horrible conditions that people were dealing with there. And that's actually part of the theme this week, too, you know, urbanization and what that really does to people. And so he saw this firsthand, and he said, you know what? These people need hygiene. Uh, They don't have it. They get these communicable diseases because they're not clean. They don't see the sunshine. There's no fresh air. There's no dirt beneath their toes, and they're miserable. And so he advocated things like public baths and, and better public health. But he was also interested, as a man working in the North, who called the South his home, he was interested in reconciliation. And so if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably already aware of this, but there is a, in Arlington National Cemetery, there is a Confederate memorial there. Of course, Lee's house is enough of a Confederate memorial, is you know, illegally seized from the Lee family, and that's a whole other issue we've talked about on the podcast before too. But there is a Confederate memorial there, and uh, that cornerstone was laid in 1912, the cornerstone of that memorial. And Baruch was there to report on the event. And he wrote a little piece for the New York Sun in 1912 about this. And it's very, very short. uh, But there's also another part of this I'm going to get into. So he said in this, and I'm going to read some of this, Amid the silent heroes who rest in honored graves on beautiful Arlington's historic summit was enacted on November 12, 1912, a scene the grandeur of which will illuminate the pages of history for all time. Now think about what he's saying there. He believed that the recognition of Confederate heroes would last for all time. This is just a shade over 100 years ago. In 100 years, we've gone from that to people spray-painting Confederate monuments. Modest though it seemed among contemporary events, on that day was laid the foundation of a monument to the heroism and self-sacrifice of the soldiers of the Southern Confederacy, of which President Taft spoke as, quote, a shrine and an altar which will be visited in the future by many a faithful pilgrim 
in which the assembled women of the South declared to be, quote, a token of love and of country in their hearts of the Southern women that had grown into a mighty strength of passion and has resulted in the declaration, quote, to the world that the Confederate soldiers and sailors and statesmen shall be remembered forever. This was just a shade over 100 years ago, and this is what Baruch is saying. President William Howard Taft had emphasized, and he's saying future generations will come here and respect the people that this monument represents. My gosh, how far have we come? He goes on, with the constant... Well, I'm sorry, with the consent and approval of the living representatives of the conquering army, this testimonial to a fallen foe was being reared among the graves of their silent conquerors. And think about that. There were actually people still alive that Southerners had fought who were there as a sign of respect. If those people, and one of the individuals he talks about, had no legs, he had lost his legs in battle, yet he was there at that event to help lay the cornerstone and say, you know what, I respect these people. If that man, a man that had lost his limbs, could do that, what does it say about us today who won't do that, who will spray paint a monument? It was an impressive lesson of peace and goodwill to all mankind to behold the sadly maimed spokesman of the Grand Army of the Republic, Corporal Tanner, who had lived and suffered with the heroic dead of the victorious army, stand with bared head and reverent mien, and with his own hand place a towel, a, a trowel of mortar upon the foundation stone of this monument to a fallen foe. On the following day, President Taft, the staunch representative of the party which carried the battles for the Union to a successful issue, added luster to his country's fame by declaring to the assembled United Daughters of the Confederacy, quote, This occasion has brought you together to celebrate the heroism, courage, and sacrifice of the men of the South, North and South alike should rejoice in the common heritage of courage. The President's address bore testimony to the depth of emotion which prompted those, these and many other words of wisdom and brotherly sympathy. Baruch concludes by saying, Is there a parallel in history to this event? Generosity to a fallen foe is the highest test of civilization. Well, he's hit the point right there. We're not living in civilization anymore. We're beyond that. We're in barbarism. But here you have President William Howard Taft at this event saying, this is a monument for North and South. This is a monument of courage and honor and sacrifice and heroism. And you have a man that has no legs because those men took them from him, taking a trowel of mortar and putting it there on the cornerstone. What does that say about these people when now someone would go and spray paint something? What does it say about those people who would do that? Well, I think the answer is clear. But this is the spirit of reconciliation. Now, I we also put uh, Taft's, the full text of Taft's speech that he gave on November 13th to the UDC. And he says this, If the occasion which brings you here were the morning at the buyer of a lost cause... I know that the nice sense of propriety of a fine old social school would have prevented you from inviting me as the President of the United States to be present. He says, you are not here to mourn or support a cause. You are here to celebrate, and justly to celebrate, 
the heroism, the courage, and the sacrifice to the utmost, uttermost of your fathers and your brothers and your mothers and your sisters and of all your kin in a cause which they believed in their hearts to be right and for which they were willing to lay down their lives. This is interesting because oftentimes you hear people saying, well, these monuments are just a symbol of lost cause. If they read this, here's William Howard Taft saying, it's not about a lost cause. It's about honoring these people. Now, of course, many of the monuments express the belief that what they were fighting for was the preservation of the South or states' rights. But that said, Taft is saying this is not about a quote-unquote lost cause. This is about your family. He says that cause ceased to be, except in history, now more than half a century ago. It was one which could elicit from half a nation and brave and warlike race a four-year struggle in which lives, property, and everything save honor were willingly parted with for its sake. So great was the genius of military leadership of many of your generals, so adept, able was the individual of your race to effect warlike training, so full of patriotic sacrifice were your people, that now when all the bitterness of the struggle on our part of the North has passed away, we're able to share with you of the South your just pride and your men and women who carried on the unexampled contest to an exhaustion that few countries ever suffered. The calm observer and historian, whatever his origin, may now rejoice in his heart that the Lord ordained it as it is. But no son of the South and no son of the North, with any spark in him of pride of race, can fail to rejoice in that common heritage of courage and glorious sacrifice that we have in the story of the Civil War and on both sides in the Civil War. So he's saying this is, this is not just for Southerners to rejoice in. This is for all Americans to rejoice in. Again, the spirit of reconciliation. And then he goes on. This is actually interesting. He says, four years after the war, the Republican Party, which had carried the nation through the war to its successful conclusion, was in control of the administration of the government. And it was impossible for the Southerner to escape the feeling that he was linked in his allegiance to an alien nation and one with whose destiny he found it difficult to identify himself. You would never hear anyone say that today. Time, however, cures much. And after a while, there came a Democratic administration of four years and then another one of four years. Southerners were called to federal offices. They came to have more and more influence in the halls of Congress and in the Senate. And the responsibility of the government brought with it a sense of closer relationship to it and to all the people for whom the government was carried on. So he's already admitting that there was, he understood why Southerners didn't really care. They, they felt they were being ruled by an alien people. He concludes by saying, It fell to my official lot with universal popular approval to issue the order which made it possible to erect in the National Cemetery of Arlington the beautiful monument to the heroic dead of the South that you founded today. The event in itself speaks volumes as to the oblivion of sectionalism. It gives me not only great pleasure and great honor, but it gives me the greatest satisfaction as a lover of my country to be present as President of the United States and pronounce upon this occasion the benediction of all true Americans. So again, think about this. This is President Taft. Would you see a president of the United States standing before this monument today and saying these exact same things? No, 
not because anything changed, but because perception has changed. Because that perception has been forced on American education by people who don't believe these things for their own, for their own selfish reasons. And that's unfortunate because this is the spirit of reconciliation. This is recognizing, well, there is something common about this to all Americans and something that all Americans can celebrate in. But no longer. Southerners have to become devils. They have to become the insignificant others that are beat upon and trounced and demonized. And on that vein, you have Clyde Wilson's piece, If This Be Treason. And he talks about the hate mail that he gets. Mostly from Republicans. He says, I have learned this from email hate letters, usually anonymous, like any M1 idiotic enough to broadcast his fulminations on the web and elsewhere. I am accustomed to such. Interestingly, I receive very little hate mail from leftists, a great deal from super patriots. It seems to be the same people who object to my criticizing W. Bush and to my saying anything favorable about Southern traditions. So you go from William Howard Taft in the early 20th century to W. Bush in the early 21st century, and there's no spirit of reconciliation anymore. Clyde says, I recently had the misfortune to get on a wire service report of an occasion in which I dared to speak ill of the ongoing campaign to suppress the Confederate flag. Of many who were deeply offended, none had the initiative shown some time back by the anonymous union leaguer from Maine who mailed me a chamber pot which he had labeled Robert E. Lee's soup turin. And the more temperate comments, usually anonymous, I was referred to as creepy and as an anti-American suffering from a defiant, stubborn, and ignorant attitude. But here is the best. You are a perfect moral argument for abortion. If you were black, you'd be the perfect moral argument for lynching. And if you were Jewish, you'd be the perfect moral argument for Auschwitz. So think about that, what William Howard Taft said in 1912, and what this moron just said in uh, the early 2000s. This piece is uh, several years old. You go from people interested in reconciliation to this. And this is why the Abbeville Institute has to exist. This is exactly why the Abbeville Institute has to exist, because we're it. And education matters, and these people have been taught for years, for years, that everything about the South was wrong. He says, these are not liberals worrying that I do not have the right attitude toward black folks. They are super patriots. They invariably point out that the war happened long ago and that we lost and should have been hanged for our treason. They don't seem to have enough historical understanding to envision that the Confederates who had fought four time their numbers to a standstill often made the invader run would hardly have sat still waiting to be hanged, or to consider what kind of country the United States would have been after all that hanging. If it all happened so long ago and they won, why are they so hot and bothered that they had to denounce as treason every effort to discuss the merits of the historical question? People who at this late date are not willing to see that the issues of the, of the war were a little more complicated than treason seem to be the same government worshipers that I have described above who regard distrust of W as a repudiation of patriotism. And this is it. I mean, it, it, it's perfect. Because you go from Taft to this. 
you go from a people who had a firm understanding of real culture and values to a people that have understanding of none. And it's sad. And so with that said, the piece on Thursday, the National Anthem, Lincoln, the Slave Owner, and Even Better, Dixie, by Paul Yarbrough, speaks to this. When I've already done a piece on the Star-Spangled Banner and the National Anthem and, and um, uh, you know, why, why this is even an issue at this point. And uh, Yarbrough brings up the fact that, you know, Francis Scott Key was a member of the American Colonization Society, an organization that promoted the immigration of free blacks to Africa. Uh, and so he's wondering when the Key statue in Baltimore is going to be taken down because the same man who designed that also designed the statue of Robert E. Lee in Richmond. But he concludes when he says, When I was a boy in grade school in Mississippi, we always stood for the Star-Spangled Banner, and we always stood when Dixie was played, which was often. The other day, while being checked out at the counter of a store, I received a call on my cell phone, which had the ringtone of Dixie. The Vietnamese lady who was checking me out said, Oh, what is that music? I told her, and she replied, Oh, that is a wonderful song. I like it. I told her that if she remained in Texas long enough, maybe she would, as I do, come to love it. I hope someone comes along someday and tells her the Pledge of Allegiance written in 1900 by a defrocked socialist minister who was trying to sell flags. Maybe by then those football players will stand for the Star-Spangled Banner, and the ones down south will stand once again for Dixie. But here again is this faux nationalism that people have just been uh, you know, bombarded with throughout their life. And you lose one thing, but we don't even understand the historical context of the other. And so it's sad. It's a sad testament to American culture, which really there isn't us. There is no such thing. There's a Southern culture that's fading, unfortunately, quickly, which is why, again, we exist to try to say, look, I mean, there are some things here we need to hang on to. So it's, it's unfortunate that you go from Taft to this, people who don't even understand real history. And with that said... On Monday, I'm sorry, on Tuesday, we ran a piece entitled Two Aristocracies. This is actually published in DeBose Review in 1866. And it's a strong attack on what he on the northeastern aristocracy that had popped up after the war. Um, and it's an unsigned piece, so nobody knows who wrote it. But there is some very interesting material here, and there's one thing that it's, it's striking because here you have Taft saying, we need to remember the South for who these people were. They were great, heroic people. They contributed to America. We need to recognize them as part of America. We can't ignore that. And he's saying this in 1912. And so this particular writer says, um, no doubt the slaveholders of the South did constitute an aristocracy and one that united much of hereditary merit to hereditary descent. They generally controlled the administration of federal affairs, except when pecuniary advantages were to be had, on which occasions the North predominated. The splendid career of the Republic, its vast expansion, and its rapid increase in wealth and population attest the merit, the energy, and the wisdom of this ruling power, the slaveholding aristocracy of the South. A more honest and incorruptible set of men never directed the affairs of a nation. They were jealous guardians of the treasury, opponents of heavy taxation, lavish expenditure, and especially 
of all partial legislation. We may never see their like again. Yes, we will, we will never see their like again. And taking out the slavery issue, these people, when you look at the Virginians, for example, who were so important in the early republic, early federal republic, uh, you can't ignore their contributions to American government, which have long been forgotten, but which we forget at our own peril. This writer says they did not tax, exploit, or in any way make or seek to make a profit out of the North, but were her best customers, buying her manufacturers, with 40% added to their open market value by protective legislation and selling to her cheap corn, wheat, rice, tobacco, cotton, and various other agricultural products and raw materials cheap because at their open market value unprotected by partial legislation. Thus, the North did tax, exploit, and make a profit out of the slaveholding aristocracy. Our only sin was that we did ex- tax, exploit, and make a profit out of the labor of our slaves, commanding the labor not as capitalists but as masters. For this sin, the South has suffered most grievously, and if radical will be continued, must in the future suffer still more grievously. So he points out the importance of what he calls the Southern slaveholding aristocracy. I mean, you could just say the Southern ruling class, and this is something that Eugene Genovese uh, spent his career talking about. You can reject slavery, but you have to understand that these people that were part of that culture provided something great to America, and that was a political intellectual tradition that we avoid at our own peril. This is when we say we explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. That's it. That's it. That. That political, intellectual, and even that political economic tradition of agrarianism. He goes on, politically we are free, but the moneyed aristocracy of the Northeast lords it over us of the South and the Northwest, and indeed the whole of the whole agricultural and laboring interest, wherever situated, with ten times the cruelty and twenty times the rapacity that ever imperial Russia lorded it over abjectly enslaved Poland. This new aristocracy that has risen on the ruins of the slave aristocracy knows no distinctions of race or color. It tyrannizes over and robs them all alike. The national debt belongs to this new aristocracy. Most of the state and corporate corporation debts are due to them. The banks all over the Union, a great part, are owned by them. So are the railroads and canals and the factories of various manufacturers, and the great mercantile interest is theirs. Through all these agencies, they tax the agriculture and working interests of the nation. They do not labor. They are non-producers, but tax the whole productive labor of the nation so heavily as to take away from it more than half its products. Are men thus taxed freemen or slaves? What matter is it whether you call the man who takes away under the forms of law without compensation half the proceeds of your labor master or fellow citizen? Does not northeastern capital now tax white labor more heavily than ever masters taxed slaves? Is not the new aristocracy of capital situated mostly in the northeast ten times as rapacious and exacting as ever was the slave aristocracy? Now, this is grand language, but you're getting at something here, and this is something William Graham Sumner said late in the 19th century, when he said, what about the forgotten man? What about the guy that's being squeezed between the northeastern merchant class and, of course, the very poor laboring class? We give to both groups, and the net loser in that is, as this piece is saying, the agriculturist and the producer in the middle, who is the middle-class American. Because they get nothing but their money confiscated for them. 
And this is the same kind of argument that John Taylor of Caroline was making back in the early 19th century. This is a populist argument. And next week we're going to have a piece on that, um, which I think is really good. But uh, I'll save that for next week. In the same vein, And so this writer says what needs to happen is that the Northwest and the South have to get together and go attack that Northeastern interest. Essentially, you could have written this in 2016, because what's happening in America now is that you have people who have been forgotten or rallying behind Donald Trump, rightly or wrongly, but they're rallying behind Donald Trump, and they're opposing the political class, which are these exploiters, the exploitation group. who don't really believe in free markets. They believe in, in government handouts for corporations and for the poor, uh, which is doing nothing to help the poor, um, and ultimately, in the long term. Yeah, they might get some, some goods, goodies out of the government now, but in the long term, you're creating a much worse situation. So this piece could have been written today because what they're saying is we need to unite against what he calls fictitious capital or universal bankruptcy and bloody anarchy will soon ensue. The capital that oppresses us is fictitious. It represents no real values. It has not never had a real existence. Tis the mere creature of legal construction and of legislative and financial ledger domain. Tis a more power of taxation conferred by law. Not property, not wealth, nothing real, substantial, visible, or tangible, whatever. This aristocracy have no money and never had any. The law has made their otherwise worthless credit subserve the purposes of money. They have the power of taxation, nothing more. And that's true still to this day. He concludes by saying, All common laborers stand on the same footing with agricultural laborers, and all should unite to oppress, I'm sorry, to oppose and put down the rule of the northeastern moneyed aristocracy. That's the political class. So in concluding, we'll go back to the Monday piece, which is the second part of Herrick Kimball's Reestablishing the Family Economy, a biblical imperative. This is a little more saturated with uh, Christian theology, but he makes some very important points, and that's good. I mean, I, I, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's one of the reasons why we want to put the piece up. It's very good. But... The parts you can pull out of this, um, excluding the theology, is what he's pushing for is a decentralized agrarian paradigm for life. Family economies on the land. And he says this is God's ideal for his people. He says, in other words, every man with his family were on a section of land, husbanding the land, making it fruitful and productive. They lived and worked close to and depended upon the source of all prosperity, the land. This is exactly what two aristocracies are saying. The economic productivity of the nation was not in factories and enormous industrial farms. It was in individual families. And these people were free, as free as earthly men can be. And so this is why he's calling for people to go back as much as they can to the land. He says industrialism and its spawn 
e.g. corporate capitalism and statism, needs to be recognized for what it is, a primary tool for the destruction of Christian culture and the enslavement of mankind. This is exactly what the author of Two Aristocracy said. You've made slaves out of people. This Northeastern has now made slaves of everybody. You got rid of one slaveholding aristocracy for another, which is even larger and more pronounced, that can't really provide the same benefits the other did because it's not agricultural. In other words, agriculture is the root of providing and establishing a very productive and vibrant culture in society. You have to have it. So we'll, we'll do the last piece of this, this three-part piece. We'll put that up. Uh, but this is what we have to remember as we're looking at what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. It's that political tradition, that economic tradition, the agrarian tradition. These are things we need to be hanging on to. And you have to start small first, but we have to reject in so many ways the corporatism of the Republican Party. As I talked about last week, the Republican Party has never represented the South or really uh, the interest of the working class in America. It never has. And the Democratic Party doesn't do it anymore either. Uh, it hasn't for a very long time. But there has to be something else, and the only way to do it, really, is not really a political solution. It has to be a family solution first and a community solution and then work up through your states. It has to come from the bottom up. And if you can do that, you can affect real change. And this is why we have to establish what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition moving forward in America. As Kimball says, get out of debt. Try to do as much as you can to become independent. The people that fought in that war in 1861 to 65 were independent people, and they were recognized as great by President Taft in 1912, a Republican. And Republicans like Calvin Coolidge recognized these men as great and honorable. What has happened in 100 years? What's happened is we've, de we've detached ourselves from what really made America great. People can't understand heroism and courage and sacrifice if they don't have it. And we live in this very immediate, self-gratifying society, a decadent culture that's turned its back on what really made America great. And that is the South. The South is America. Until next time, good day. <laughs>